John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and, will co- and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> what kind of prayer is this? It's obviously a man pouring out his heart. It's a man who is about to die, and he knows it. He just finished telling the uh, disciples that, I'm going away, I'm going to send the comforter to you. He just finished explaining to them that he was going to be lifted up, and it seems like they're starting to get it. We find out later they still didn't get it, and they were still heartbroken and disappointed because they didn't really expect it to be like that and the severity of his manner of leaving was not what they expected. We, um, he, is, he has demonstrated his heart of love and comfort to his disciples. And now, in this chapter, he, after finishing speaking these words, he lifts up his voice in prayer And he says, the last and most important things he'll ever say, except also including in the garden and from the cross. Can I request assistance in getting that one working? Thanks. This is a handoff from Jesus, who has kept his disciples in the truth, who has kept them from evil, who's kept them from being overcome by the world. It's a handoff from Jesus to the Holy Spirit through whom Jesus is now doing his work, even now. But he's not just handing off his manner of securing and protecting and aiding these these men and women and children. He is handing off the ministry of reconciliation to God to them. So think about what he does say and think about what he doesn't say. There are, there are about uh, eight or so th- specific things that he's praying, praying for and says that he's doing. And you might, as you meditate on this throughout the day, realize that there are things he leaves out. He doesn't pray things like, I hope they don't mess up or I hope they don't make a mistake. He doesn't pray... I hope they don't sin at all. He says, keep them from the evil one. Keep them from evil. He says, uh, keep them in your name. He says, make them one even as we are one. He's also praying that the Holy Spirit, that the Father through the Son, through the Holy Spirit, would continue to do the work he's been doing. Notice that he just named the work he's been doing. Um, It's the prayer of a high priest. He's also praying that the atonement he's about to make on their behalf works. He's, He's about to go and become a sin offering for the people. He's about to make atonement for them. Go back in your mind's eye and imagine a high priest in the times of the Old Testament who's 
who's once a year on the Day of Atonement walking up and entering the, the courts of the temple and preparing and washing his hands in the big bronze wash basin and, and he's preparing to make offering on behalf of the whole people to go into the temple to burn incense and to sprinkle some of the blood on the, the mercy seat above which Yahweh's presence dwells, above which the Father, Son, and Spirit, the eternal God, live and, and were manifest at that time to the people of God. Jesus is doing this right now, but he's doing it once and for all. He's the great high priest. No other atonement for our sin will ever be needed. He's praying that this atonement would be effectual, that it would be effective, that it would work. And then he names specific things, not just that we might be sanctified and kept from the evil one, but that we would be one. And in this oneness, the world will understand that we are of God and that, and that God's name, his, uh, his self, so to speak, is in us. And his name is written on us in such a true way that we actually are his ambassadors and we bear his image rightly as we were always intended to do. As it says in Genesis that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. In the image of God we were made. And so in looking at this one church, this one holy people, and looking at our love for one another, people will be able to discern Christ in us. They won't see Christ in us in the right way by ourselves. So let's imagine you stop going to church forever. Christ will not be visible in you in the right way. That's why we go to church. That's why, we, that's why we live together and have real meaningful community and do life together. If we were to stop doing that and to watch, uh, let's say you could get out of your house, you're not homebound, but for the rest of your life you say, all I need is my Bible and Bedside Baptist Church, right? That's what we used to say in college. They'd ask us where you're going to church and, and we'd say Bedside Baptist once in a while when we wanted to skip the coming together of the saints. But that's improper for God's holy people. And here's why. Because you can't see Christ in a fractionated, in a, in a fractured, separated people. It's not, that's not a real thing. There's no such thing as all of us dispersing, separating in various ways, not coming together, not doing life together, and then than the world still knowing who he is. This is his plan of evangelism, to see and join the holy and unified people of God. So Jesus is about to make atonement. He's praying for the Father to make this sacrifice work, right? For the atonement to be sufficient once and for all. And then he pours out his heart the specific things that he desires for us throughout our lives. And so as we read this chapter for the rest of our lives, hopefully hundreds of times, and, and count the things that Jesus prayed for 
and think Jesus is in heaven at the Father's right hand praying for this for me, praying for this for our congregation, praying for this for all the saints in the world and for my children. Jesus is praying for your children and your grandchildren for these specific things. We're going to look at every one of them. Therefore, these are Jesus' thoughts about what's important to him and about what he thinks is important for us. This is what he is thinking about right now. This is what he's praying for us right now. Can you operate the clicker? It's too hard for me to do. Um, Look at verse 1. What does he pray for? The first thing he prays for is his own glory. The first thing Jesus prays for in this like end of life summary statement of everything he wants is his own glory. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This in one sentence tells us what life is all about. Tells us why he created. Tell us what is in God's heart. We are not the first thing he prays for. The first thing he prays for is his own glory. Therefore, in your private prayer life, first pray not for yourself or others. Pray first for his glory. And we're going to see a pattern of how we pray for his glory. The Lord's Prayer is also an excellent pattern of that, of how we pray for his kingdom to come, that his will would be done. But here he says the number one thing on Jesus' heart before time began, before the foundation of the world, Uh, all through this period of human history from Adam and Eve to the end and all through eternity to come, the one thing God wants above all else is His glory. Notice that the Son and the Father share it. There's, There's a total mutuality, a complete sharing that glory doesn't stay with the Father and then get given to the Son, and then the Son who maybe, if you're a member of a cult like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, you might have some sort of philosophy that Jesus was a man like us, and then through perfection, through self-effort, he became a God and was therefore unified with God, with the Father, and then he set the, he laid down the groundwork or laid a pattern for us to do the same, to be really, really good people and to become like God ourselves. That's, that's exactly what Satan tried to tempt Adam and Eve with in the garden, isn't it? To become like God ourselves. God has a different plan for us to be made like him. And it's through his own authority. The next thing Jesus mentions is his authority. And though the scriptures do bear out that we are kings and priests and that we have authority to trample on uh, serpents and scorpions or figuratively the power of the enemy, demons, even our own flesh to overcome the world, we have been given ability and authority to, in full unification with Christ, press that out, walk that out, do that. We don't have the same authority as him. One thing he doesn't pray for is, give them my authority. He doesn't pray that we would become gods ourselves. If that's what he wanted, he would have prayed for it, right? That's missing. So that's why 
we don't believe in that philosophy of becoming perfected and being elevated to becoming gods. That's not something Jesus believed in. Instead, he prayed that we would have eternal life. Uh, flip down to the next slide, please. Verses, uh, verse 4 he again mentions his glory, that his work on earth was to glorify the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. His work was to glorify the Father. Flip to verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We just said Jesus didn't start as a regular person, a regular human, and then become like God, and then progress to become a God, or to become unified with some sort of eternal oneness spirit thing, right? So that knocks out half the religions in the world right there. Jesus instead said, I had all the glory with you before the world existed. How is that possible? The scripture says there's only one God. He says, you are one in Deuteronomy. Here, we have to see God exists as three persons in one. If you take this with the chapters before where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit continuing to do all the things that he was doing, we see the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Three, all doing the same thing, having all the authority and having all the glory and doing all the same work of keeping us in his name. This passage is one of the easiest passages to, to uh, teach us that God must exist in more than one person. In fact, three. Because you can't have two beings that both have all the glory. Either one has most of it and one has a little bit less or something. They, they have to. There has to be a totalizing oneness here. And yet, he speaks to the Father because the Father is, in a manner of speaking, uh, uh, different or separate from himself. But both of those words could be easily misunderstood. So Jesus prays that that he would continue to have the glory that he always had since before time began, before the world was set on its foundations, as the psalmist says. Let's look back at verse 2. Authority and glory flow to the Son and the Father. The Father gave the Son authority over all flesh, but we remember that the Son with the Father, with the Spirit, had authority over all flesh and had authority over all that was and would be before time began, and that together, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect unity shared all the glory. Now, Jesus explains how, like what his plan is for God to be glorified. Flip to the next slide, verse 3. It says, He was given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, to all that the Father has given the Son, 
And then he explains what he means. He doesn't leave that confusing for us. He doesn't, he doesn't leave us to the possibility that we could believe that eternal life means just going to heaven and, and everything being fine. There's something a little bit different that he has in his heart. And we should too, when we think about what eternal life means. This is eternal life, that we know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's another clear Trinitarian statement. Eternal life can't be both to know God the Father and to know God the Son as separate things. He's presenting it as one and the same thing. He's explaining, I and the Father are one, even perfectly one. So, Glory flows to the Father through our recognition that Jesus is from God. Uh, verse 5, he glorified the Father on earth by doing, by completing the work he was given. And then uh, he continues, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 6, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. This is God's plan to receive glory. This is what he does with his authority. God's strategy for receiving glory is to cause us to hear Jesus' words, to hear the scripture, to come alive, and in hearing, to live. That's what eternal life means. And further, as we do that, to glorify him ourselves, like a flower opening up to the sun, and the flower is seen as glorious and beautiful, but it was the sun that caused the flower by its heat and, ra and radiation to open, and present itself to him, a beautiful thing. Therefore, the day is glorified because of the beauty of the flowers that open in the day. Therefore, the morning star who rises in our hearts, even Jesus, is glorified as we come alive to him, as we become image bearers of him, and little pictures, billions of little pictures of who God is, and we reflect his glory back to him. And this is especially and primarily done in the church, in the saints. So what does Jesus pray for? Number one, he prays for his own glory. That's what he wants. And that's what we should be praying for above all else, that he would be glorified in us and glorified in the church and the members of the church who will come. He prays that those who receive Jesus' words would know that he is of God. He's prayed that we would have eternal life by knowing the Father and the Son. Look at verse, verses 8 and 9. The next thing Jesus wants is that those who receive Jesus' words would know that he is of God. If you struggle with doubts, with temptation towards skepticism, if you constantly feel the sense rising up in your heart no, I can't quite believe that. Or you come together in Sunday worship and you feel like, oh, I can't quite worship. And you keep quiet and you, 
your hands are in your pockets or you kind of maybe mutter a little bit to yourself. That's a limitation of the glorification of God. So what do you do about that? Join Jesus in prayer. Right now, he's praying for you that you would not be a skeptic. He's praying for you that you would know that Jesus is of God and is to be worshiped and glorified supremely. So ask God to help you through a season of doubt. Ask God to overcome that as your destiny is to overcome all other sin and unbelief. Ask him to cause you to know that Jesus and the Father are one and to be worshiped and glorified and to to reveal that to you in a supernatural way so that you desire to worship him in song, in action, and in how you treat your fellow Christian. Uh, Verse 16 also bears this out. You don't have to skip ahead to the slide. Uh, It says that we are not of the world, just as he is not of the world. Therefore, we know that we are not of the world. Verses 20 and 21, he's not just praying for us, He's also praying for everybody who will come after us. That is, he's not just praying for the disciples who believed in him at the time, who are sitting with him at the upper room or who were nearby. He's praying for every Christian throughout time who would ever come. Therefore, know this. Jesus continues to pray and to advocate for you to the Father at the Father's right hand. And even as he has poured out the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is accomplishing these things that he continues to pray. He will bring it about. He is faithful, and he will do it. Don't worry and think you can't remain a Christian because you've struggled with doubts or you've struggled with sin. The Lord is faithful, and he will do it. This is what he wants. He's not going to lose anybody out of his hand. That means you. Verse 11. Let's go there. Jesus prays that the Father would keep us in his name that we may be one. And this is beginning to get at Jesus' main emphasis the oneness of all believers. But we'll come back to that. It says, keep us in his name. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, or so that they may be one, even as we are one. So what's the basis for Christian community? What makes us one? In this congregation of 30 people, there are multiple different, there are, a couple of different genders. There are multiple different levels of ages from from the youngest to the the golden years. There are multiple different ethnicities, like at least a half a dozen or something. We represent uh, pretty much every continent here, right? Not Australia. We're missing Australia. And we're missing Antarctica, but I don't think we need to represent that. What else about us is alike? We're not all of the same socioeconomic status, even just the 30 or so of us in this room. We're not all of the same background. Some are from the country, some are of the, from the city. Some, of, uh, some love books and study and reading, and that's their thing, and they've, and they've advanced in education. Some have received uh, foundational education, maybe 
just that uh, received at home without extra classes or extra books, and that might not even be a value, a strong value to you. So if we're not united by ethnicity, we're not united by our gender, we're not united by, uh, by our age, we're not united by... I can't think of anything that unites people that has brought us together today. What normally makes a click? All of those things, common interests. We represent a lot of different common interests here, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different lifestyles. There's one thing that makes us one. There's one who makes us one. It's him. How does he say that we would be one? Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. We're one because God has labeled us his. As a Christian, you no longer wear the labels you wore when you were in the world. You no longer wear black, white, man, woman, young, old, uh, sports enthusiast, uh, successful business person, uh, poor, sick, uh, uh, capable, incapable. All of those labels are in your old life. There's one label that you wear now and only one thing that Jesus here prays we would identify with. It's his name. What does it say in Revelation? It describes the saints and it says that his name is written on us, doesn't it? Chapters 2 and 3. So it's like God has taken this stamp, or better, his own handwriting, and he's walked up to Jonathan Maddox and he's written Jesus. He's written Father, Son, Spirit. He's written Yahweh. All of these names of God that, that represent who he is. It's not a label just Christian. You're not just called a Christian. It doesn't just say Christ's. Or, or mini-Christ, or Christian on your forehead now. That name, the word name, represents everything God is. It does not mean, now you're a God. This means, now you, as you were made in the image of God, now you have been remade in his image, and he's perfecting you so that you rightly bear his image as was intended in the beginning of creation, and it means that you belong to him. It means that you're his. You actually do look like a mini Christ. You wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and is your first thought, boy, I just look like I'm radiating glory and, and the, the, the image and presence of God. No, you think, oh my gosh, what's that in my eye? And as you pick it out, you think, oh, this hair, what a, you know, or maybe you don't look in mirrors. <laughs> maybe you should. <laughs> God looks at you and he sees the image and likeness of God. This is the label that you will wear forever. It won't be taken off your forehead. What is our only hope in life and death? It's that we belong to God. That's it. If you have another hope in life and death, I request and plead with you that you repent of your idol. Your only hope in life and death is not being 
happy or successful or things working out. It's not even that, that our, our congregation would be just fine or that all of your plans for the future or hopes or aspirations or dreams would work out in one way or another. Your only hope in life and death, that is our only hope in life and death, is that we belong to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. And that is clearly what's in Jesus' heart. It's the only thing that makes us one. And your name will not be blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. How do we know that? You remember that passage? Uh, you know, that uh, the verse that, uh, that talks about a name not being blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. That's Jesus' book of life. That's Jesus' list of who belongs to him, who's got the name Christ written on their forehead. How do we know that that's an impossibility? Because another passage says that our names are written in the book of life, if we indeed are in him, before the foundation of the world. So what began at the foundation of the world? Time. This is an eternal uh, writing down. The book of life is not, is probably not a piece of paper that's really long or has many pages or is rolled up somewhere in heaven and has everybody's name literally written on it, or if it is, fine. But primarily, it's the eternal intent of God to know you by name and to keep you in his name. That is, to keep you a Christian. That's what's in God's heart. He is able to do it, and he will do it. So don't fall away. Verse 13, let's look at that. I love this because it's a good reminder when I get all caught up in trying to be a good worker or trying to be a good member of Christian community or whatever I kind of get, I, I start to overemphasize. It's a good reminder that Jesus is happy with me and that Jesus wants me to delight in his delighting in me and to share his joy. Verse 13, Jesus says to the Father, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world, aka I'm praying for these things and I've just finished saying these things in the other chapters so that, what? So that the joy Jesus had, which was a supreme and, and even ineffable joy, a, a joy that was so great it was really impossible to, to speak it. That his joy and delight, Zephaniah 3.17 says, he sings songs of joy over us. That doesn't mean when we're going through a hard time or we've done a bad thing, he stops being delighted in us. Is he displeased with sin? Of course. Has he taken care of sin? Was his atonement effectual? Of course. He remains delighted in his holy children at all times, because his atonement is an eternal atonement. It's called the, the blood of the eternal covenant. Therefore, it is logical and reasonable for Jesus to delight in you and to have perfect joy that you belong to him and that you glorify his name and will continue to rightly, and from our perspective increasingly so, although from his perspective, we glorify him in according to his intent right now. That's hard to understand. So Jesus 
would like you to be filled with joy. So if you're a sourpuss, knock it off. If your attitude is displeasure towards yourself, towards your children, towards your spouse, towards your housemates, towards your boss or your job or your station in life, then, then I think you need to reconsider something big time. Jesus is asking, and, and he's, because he's delighting in all of these things that we've named being done, and he's able to do it, and he's delighting in you, he desires, we're about to see, that we would be with him and to see his glory, that we would be one even as he is one. And in all those things, not in everything going right, but in those things, we would delight. That is, that we would delight in our unification with one another and with him. And with him being in us and us being in him, that's our joy. What is our joy in life and death and sickness and in health, etc.? It's having his name written on us. It's belonging to him. It's knowing that all these things that Jesus once prayed for a couple of thousand years ago uh, in some upper room and some house and some little tiny country somewhere else, it's that they're going to get done. So when everything goes wrong, remember that Jesus is able to make these things go right. Not everything will seem to go right to you, but you may turn your attention, you may look away from these things unto Jesus, it says in Hebrews. Look away from them unto Jesus, who started you in the faith, and who will perfect you in the faith. Look away from those things, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his delight in you and his capability to bring about what he's desired, what he's praying for here. Even your sanctification and unification with all other Christians for all time and, your, and our complete marriage, the one holy, universal uh, church that is all those Christians that have ever lived and ever will live, our oneness so that he might describe us as a single person, even as a bride, he's able to bring about his unification or his marriage to us both now and at the end. And in these things we delight. So if your strategy to cheer yourself up is not to redirect your attention to these things, it's probably not the kind of joy or the object of joy or the type of joy that Jesus wants you to have. So let your strategy to cheer yourself up be to turn your attention away from all other things, to look at his face and perceive supernaturally in the spirit that his face is giving off light towards you. Just like when Moses went to meet with God in the tent, he'd come out and people freaked out. They're like, your face is glowing, Moses. You got to... That's weird. We got to like, here, put this over your face. We can't, that's too whack. We can't look at that. As you gaze at Jesus in the scriptures, in worship, in our oneness, you also will perceive Jesus in our midst, 
and will know that he is here. Jesus is able to convince your brain and to convince your spirit that these things are true and that this is ultimate reality. So turn your attention away from those things that you're thinking about when you have a, a bad attitude, um, when, you're, when you have a, a foul or an attitude of displeasure towards your children, spouse, housemates, parents, roommates. Of course we all struggle with these things. So return in your perspective to looking at that which gave Jesus joy. And in these things, you will be enabled to have joy and to turn towards an attitude of grace towards your fellow man. This is probably hardest if you're a parent with our own children or with our spouses. So I'll say for the third time, if your attitude towards your spouse or children, if you're married or to whoever else you know, is one of displeasure, ingratitude, and isn't an attitude of grace, if the words you say aren't normally and mostly good words, returning good for evil, you haven't captured the heart of the Father towards that person. You haven't you haven't realized or pressed out or walked out in your life Jesus' prayer for you and for that person. Is this going to be hard? Yeah, it'll probably be the hardest thing you ever do. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, just, just having words of grace and goodness towards my wife and children. That's very hard, even though they're wonderful and uh, extremely cute, um, both children and wife. So Jesus prays these things that we have, might have his joy fulfilled in ourselves. Every day, remember that. That should be an object and a pursuit in your day. And that is brought about by looking away from all other things to Jesus and supernaturally by the power and insight and ability of the Holy Spirit as you think about the scriptures and read them every day and recite them to yourself every day, as you perceive God and see him as he is in his glory, that should be your daily routine. That's what a Christian does. Next, verse 15. Let's go there. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Jesus says even as he himself is going out of the world. He says, but that you keep them from the evil one. And we know that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or hope. And this is what he is asking for. He is able to keep you from falling. He is able to keep you from evil. What does this mean? Does this mean that if you sin, or if you sin twice, or if you sin in the same way three times, that Jesus' prayer didn't work. No. It says in the scripture that the righteous falls seven times. Seven in the scripture is used to mean complete or perfect or all of it or a lot. It means the righteous falls seven times. The righteous falls over and over and over and over again. 
and gets back up. That's what the scripture says. Do you know that verse? Find it and memorize it. Jesus is able to keep us from remaining in a lifestyle of sin. And this he will do for all those who are his. So we said at the beginning that the way we apply this chapter full of eight or so of Jesus' prayers of what's in Jesus' heart for us is to join him in praying for these things. So as you go through this passage, and we said, hopefully you'll read John chapter 17 uh, at least dozens, at least dozens of times. I hope you read John 17 hundreds of times in the next 5, 10, 20, 50 years. Because we should know each of these things and they should be our regular, even daily prayer life. Jesus is able to keep you from the evil one. So therefore, the way you apply that is to join him in praying for that. Father, keep me from evil. Don't lead me into temptation. It's not, this isn't a let go, let God gospel. The mysterious paradox of the gospel is that he chose us before time began. We belong to him before we existed when we were yet in the heart of God. He will keep us in his name forever. No one can be lost from the Father's hand. His hand is mighty even when yours is weak and when the arm of flesh fails. Not only that, but God is able to cause us to be um, perfectly one and to be sanctified in the truth. Quickly, let's look at verse 6. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What does that mean, they kept his word? What word? It's the things that Jesus spoke which are the eternal words of God. It's the things that he had previously spoken through the prophets that were written down in the eternal words of God, of which none, not even a little jot or a tittle, will pass away, right? So what does that mean for you? How are you going to be sanctified in the truth? And Jesus says clearly, your word is truth. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen by you never reading your Bible. False. It's not going to happen unless you read the scripture and hear the preaching of the scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Likewise, action and good works. So the paradox of scripture is that God chose you. God accomplished this great salvation of his people. God will keep you in his name and that you therefore must walk it out and keep yourself from evil. So the, he's the originator of your faith. He's the perfecter of your faith. He keeps you from falling during your lifetime of needing to be faithful. It's his faithfulness that overcomes our unfaithfulness. And he causes all those who are his to remain ultimately his. But you have to be taking in Bible. You have to be here, sitting under the preaching of God's word. That's the means by which these things occur. That's the means by which we're sanctified in his word, which is the truth.
uh, verse 8 repeats that uh, God, that the Father kept the disciples in the words that were given to Jesus, that he caused them to receive them. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word. Verse 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This passage, this chapter, John 17, is saturated with instructions to read the Bible. Therefore, if you're not a person who reads the Bible every day, you have to become one. This is the lifestyle of a Christian. Is there going to be a day when you don't open the Bible? Yeah, of course. I mean, probably. You know, it'd be great if it wasn't. But, but the purpose of this is so that this gets in our mind and our heart. If you're not memorizing large amounts of Scripture, remember that if you don't have it open in front of you and you can't remember it, then it's useless to you. So one of the ways that we join Jesus in this prayer for the church, for ourselves, and for the oneness of all believers is by praying, give me a hunger for your word. Cause me to like to read the Bible and to have supernatural power to overcome distractions when I'm reading the Bible. And then do it. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, find time to read the Word of God. That is necessary. Verse 11 says, uh, you don't have to go there. Um, it says that Jesus is praying that we would be perfectly one. I'm just going to name verse 11, verse 21, and 23. Let's go to verse 21. Jesus is praying that we all would be one, just as the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father, that we also would be in the Father and the Son, so that the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus. This is an astonishing thing. And in my study of this passage, this is the one thing that remained just puzzling to me. God is one. He's three persons in one. There's, there's a totalizing unification of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, this one triune God. Jesus just prayed that we, and all the Christians who live before us, and all the Christians who will live after us, would be one even as he is one. In my study of this, I have no idea what this means. This is astonishing. It sounds impossible. I don't even know how we could be one since we're separate persons and we're not the same being. God is separate persons and he's the same being. But here Jesus is saying that what he wants is that our love for one another might cover over our, our sins against one another and that our deference to one another, our perfect courtesy towards one another, our restoration of the one who has broken and fallen among us, all of these things, the way we daily forgive each other, forgive our wife or husband or kids or housemate, is that going to have to happen daily? If you're not married yet, uh, you got a surprise waiting for you. You're going to have to forgive your spouse daily, every day. I don't think there's been a day that my wife hasn't had to forgive me in her almost seven years of marriage. Jesus is praying for that this kind of oneness actually happens among us. I'm going to quickly, in closing, quote uh, John Weiss uh, preached on this passage in 2014. 
and he named the purposes for community or the purposes of this oneness. He said that unity prepares people for encountering God. If you don't have unity with the rest of the body of Christ, you won't encounter God. If you're not part of the church, the the holy universal church before and after you, if you're not part of it and you don't participate in it in a real meaningful way, you will never see God. So go beyond coming on a Sunday morning or a Friday night or a Wednesday night or whatever you do and have a bigger vision of what that kind of unity and community with your brothers and sisters looks like and means. Walk this out. It's probably bigger than you think. And it will cause you to meet and to know God. And the way others who discipled you or who witnessed to you or who invited you to church treated you has caused you to encounter God. Pass that on. Unity prepares people for encountering God. John Weiss said, the purpose of community is to create a shared space and time in which disciples can serve and love those who are yet to put their hope in Christ. So if there's an annoying person or a, or a kind of, or a person that you, you are disgusted at uh, who comes to your congregation, welcome them. This is the place where those outside the camp come in and find a place and find a home just as you have found a home among this people and in his name. It prepa- living in this kind of oneness and this kind of community prepares people who have yet to encounter God to come into his presence. It causes you, living in this kind of unity and community and oneness, causes your continuing maturity. If there aren't people who know you and who know what's going on in your life and who you've given permission to give you advice and counsel, you are probably never going to mature as a Christian. That's a terrible thing. People have to know you and have your permission to, to say, hey, I, there's something here that needs to change. And we hope that happens in grace. And when it doesn't, you can forgive them. John also said that living in this kind of community and unity causes us to become a people who serve as a prophetic witness of the life of the world to come. We have challenges in our relationships with one another and with other Christians outside this congregation. There are a lot of challenges. Just look at us. Think about it. Think about the heartbreaks and hardships we've shared, the the challenges in our relationships. Sometimes the wounds have run deep. This oneness is not complete. But when you forgive, when you show perfect courtesy, when you pray, God, make me a servant, instead of, I didn't deserve you to treat me like that, when you pray, make me a servant like Jesus came off and took off, so to speak, his royal robes and put on the towel of a servant and got down and, and scrubbed the really sweaty, nasty, dirty feet that walked, surely had walked in manure, or maybe human waste of his disciples in that upper room. When your prayer every day is, God, give me the mind of Christ. Jesus, make me a servant. That's how we become one. In doing that, 
Your life is like a living letter. Our life, our community life together is a living letter, a prophecy of what's to come. It's very important that you pray for these things and do them in your life and partner with Jesus who's praying these things for you. I think we need to close here even though there's so much more in this passage. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you would like us and delight in us and remain delighted in us even when we are not delightful. And yet, because you accomplished the work the Father sent you to do, you lived righteously and you were able to take your robes of righteousness, the glory and the holiness in which you walked and lived, and you were able to take your holy robes and clothe us who, who were naked in our sin and our shame, and you became ashamed and naked on the cross for us, and you clothed us and made us a holy people. This is awesome. So, Father, we, 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 we love that you have had this in your heart for us. We love that you have so delighted in us that you would even think about us or even take care of us at all or help us even when we did everything right, but we continually make mistakes and fall on our face. And so we pray, along with the Son, that you would keep us in your name, knowing full well that you'll do it. We pray for grace to partner with you in these things that you prayed for us and grace to partner with you in the paradox of the gospel of doing them, that we have to do what you are doing because that makes it, it makes it manifest that we are yours when we do the works that you did. So, O oh Lord, give us grace and make us look like you in all of these ways that you might be glorified. We pray that we would care less about everything else and that we would care more about your glory, about you being seen as king, and about your kingdom coming by your will being done in our own lives, especially in our love for one another. That the world might know that Jesus is of God and that the Holy Spirit is the one who supernaturally causes us to be one, and that people might perceive God in the fellowship of the saints. And thank you very much for all these things. We have no greater delight or joy in life, nor is there anything we hope in that's better or steadier than these very great and precious promises. Thank you that you are at the Father's right hand praying for us even now. Oh, we need it. Amen.